0: Well hey, summer is here. Are you excited? Yeah! Man, it's not even just the weather, because apparently we're not getting that today. Uh, It's not even just the change of pace, and frankly, um, it's not even the fact that the Obi-Wan show is finally here. Though I'm excited for all of those things, um, I'm really pumped for this summer, in large part because of the series that we're gonna start uh, today. And so let me set it up for you this way so you can share in some of my excitement. Um, On a cold January morning in 1967, a man named Timothy Leary stood before a crowd of 30,000 people gathered just across the bay um, at Golden Gate Park. Um, Now, the crowd was young, um, mostly under the age of 30, and they had come together to protest the state of the world. Now, before you go, well, that's just what people under 30 do, you got to remember the 60s. Some of you are like, you don't remember the 60s. No, I, I've been told though, right? This was, um, this was a time of turmoil in the world. This was a time when um, you had the war in Vietnam was killing more than 100 soldiers a week Uh, The struggle for uh, racial equality back home was getting increasingly violent. Um, And then the president that so many looked to for hope uh, had just been assassinated. And so it's in the midst of all of this turmoil um, that Timothy Leary stood in front of this crowd, this young and restless crowd, and he gave his now infamous invitation. Turn on, tune in, and drop out. And with that a movement was born that put San Francisco on the map as the hippie capital of the world. Um, That summer, um, more than 100,000 people dropped out of school, uh, dropped out of work, kind of punched out of the system and the man, and came to the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood of San Francisco to turn on and tune into a new way of living. And they called it the Summer of Love. Um, Just out of curiosity, how many of you were there? I knew we're close enough. We've got several. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Okay. So this was uh, a real talk a little before my time. Uh, Some of you are like, no kidding. Um, But see, even I know uh, that you cannot tell the story of California. Apparently you can't even tell the story of our church, uh, much less the entire world, apart from understanding what happened that summer just across the Bay, because this invitation, it didn't stay in the Bay Area. Um, It made it around the world. It made it all the way across the pond um, to four guys with funny-looking haircuts uh, that uh, heard the invitation, joined in on this, and they wrote a theme song that really captured the spirit of the summer. The song goes like this. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love, love. Love is all you need. And and the fact that you're now humming that tune in your head, and we'll have that stuck in your head the rest of the afternoon, um, shows just how powerful Timothy Leary's invitation was. Um, Turn on, tune in, and drop out not only shaped the lives of an entire generation, um, but it created an entire culture um, that even people like me, who weren't around for the original summer of love, can look back on it with nostalgia for the good old days. It's a powerful invitation, and um, I stand here before you this morning um, with an even more radical invitation. Um, if you've got a Bible, grab it and turn to First Corinthians chapter thirteen. Um, this is one of, uh, one of, if not the most famous chapter in the Bible. Um, I'm sure that many of you if not all of you have heard it before several of you probably had this chapter read at your wedding and what I want to do is I want to take a fresh look at this revolutionary chapter today um, and and consider what made it so powerful and by the end of today's message uh, I'm going to invite you into something more subversive and world-changing than even what happened across the bay 55 years ago are you ready? All right, some of you are like, I've been waiting 50 plus years for this, let's go. 1 Corinthians 13, I'm going to read the whole chapter and then we'll chat. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, well, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. incredible chapter and and one of the difficulties of preaching on a chapter this popular um, is i know that we've all heard this chapter so often we're so used to hearing it at weddings um, that we come in with a certain set of expectations Um, and while there's nothing wrong with reading this chapter at weddings there's maybe a lot of reason to do this uh, if you come to this chapter expecting only to learn about romantic love, you're going to miss the entire message of the chapter, and you probably won't have anything significant to even bring to romantic love. And so, what I want to do to start this morning is I want to tell you about the story behind this chapter um, to kind of help us hear it uh, as the original audience would have heard it so that we could hear its revolutionary message for our lives today. So, let, let's chat about the story behind this letter. Um, 1 Corinthians 13 is a chapter in a letter written by a disciple of Jesus named Paul to a a group of Christians living in the city of Corinth. Um, And this group of Christians, this church, um, they had some real strengths. Uh, If you read this letter, you'll see 1 Corinthians 13 comes in the middle of a discussion about spiritual gifts that runs from chapter 12 to chapter 14. Um, And in this discussion of spiritual gifts, um, a spiritual gift, by the way, It's a unique ability that the Holy Spirit gives to his people to make much of Jesus. Um, So it's as close to superpowers as we get in this world. It's something from another world that God puts in his people um, to bring uh, the kingdom of God to this place here and now. And um, this church is is Paul's talking about the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. One of the things we see is this church had it all. Uh, They had prophets. They had famous preachers. They had a world-renowned generosity, Um, they had discernment, they had gifts of healing, gifts of tongues, where I know some of you are like, some of the last stuff sounds a little weird. Um, That would probably be another sermon, but let me just say this, the Holy Spirit has lots of different kinds of gifts that he gives to his people, and all of them are useful and necessary for the building up of the body and the making much of Jesus in the world, even the ones that we in a Baptist church might think are a little more funky, Um, but getting off track on that. This church had it all. They had all of the gifts. They were a very impressive church. A pastor friend of mine preaching on this passage, he said, this might have been the most gifted church in history. Uh, And it's possible. I mean, they literally had Paul writing Bible to them. This is a very impressive church. It's a very gifted church. They had a lot going for them. At the same time, they had some real weaknesses. Um, Paul will say in chapter 11 that for all of your giftedness, you know, when your church gathers, it's for the worse, not the better. You might as well just stop doing the church gathering thing because you're causing so much damage. Now, how could that be? How could a church that is so gifted with all of these supernatural abilities, how could someone filled with the Holy Spirit say, you might want to stop meeting for a while? Well, that's what chapter 13 is about. And Paul opens this chapter by saying, all of the gifts in the world are useless without this thing called love. He says you can have all the right gifts, you can have all the right knowledge, you can even have the right priorities. Like you might be um, dialed into justice and giving all you have to the poor. You can do all of that, but if you don't do it motivated out of love, you're nothing. You gain nothing, and worse than nothing, he uses this powerful imagery of a clanging symbol, um, which I want to try to drive this home so I want to help us feel this in our bones because I don't think it's just a message for the church in Corinth I think this is a message we need to hear today what Paul says is you can have all the right things going for you on the outside you can look impressive but without love this is how you come across to people It's important to go to college and get a good education and work really hard because... Some of you are going to see why no one sits in the front row today. He he says, uh, man, without love, you come across like this. Hey, we need to recognize our privilege and consider how to build systems that would lift up the oppressed because... Now you'll see why no one's on this side. Sorry, hon. My wife is sitting in the front row here. Um, But let's go on. Let's just keep, because I want you to feel this in your bones. He says, Without love, you sound like this. I'm so concerned about the moral decay in this country. We've got to do something about it because. And you know what? If we don't do something about global warming soon, none of it will matter because. What Paul's saying. It's you can have all the right priorities. Some of you are like, thank the Lord. <laughs> That's the point right there. What Paul is saying is you can have all the right priorities, you can have all the right gifts, you could be dialed into all the right causes, but if you're not motivated by love for doing these things, not only will you gain nothing, you're just going to come across as annoying to everybody around you. Did that just explain 2022 to anybody else? See, this was their disconnect. They were gifted. They had the right priorities. They were saying the right stuff. But without love, they were coming across like that. That was their disconnect. That's why Paul said for all the gifts you have, for all the book deals your various ministers could get and the generosity that you have, it might be better if you just close the doors for a little while and work on shop for a little bit. Because that is not an accurate depiction of what God is like. That was their disconnect. And I'm going to argue today, I think it's often our disconnect as well. Where um, I'm struggling with this sermon this week because I'm like, I don't think I'm going to say anything this morning to you that's mind-blowing. I don't think any of you are going to go, wait a second, Christians are supposed to value love? Oh my goodness, I have to completely rethink my life. I had no idea this was something that Jesus says is a value. Um, By the way, if you are learning that for the first time this morning, so glad you're here. I just, I'm thinking of so many of my brothers and sisters and, and like myself who go, okay, yeah, I know that we're supposed to value love. But what Paul's saying in this chapter, I think it's so important to get this, is he's not just saying that love is a thing that we value. What he is saying is love is a way of living from which every value we have must flow. And if our values aren't operating in love, then we sound like that. And we don't show the world what God is like. We just annoy everyone around us, and we make zero progress. And we might be so frustrated because we're like, we have all the right theology. We have all the right social programs. Why isn't it growing? And what I think here, just have some real talk, this is really where God's been pressing me on my life, Um, where I think I'm often a lot like the Corinthians where I think of love as a part of a long list of virtues. And I'm like, okay, love is on a long list of virtues, and I, I feel like I'm doing okay at some. Yeah, uh, you know, on, on my worst days, I'm like, oh, I'm doing better than most at some, right? Um, am I the only one that struggles with pride? Okay. Um, but I, I, I've got love on a long list of virtues, and I'm like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm kind of crushing some of these, and I, I'll get to love eventually, I will get to love when I've got time. And this is just where I feel like God's been pressing me that I'm so much like the Corinthians that have love on my list of virtues that I'll get to if I have time, but I don't really see it as like necessary to stop my life to figure it out. Paul says to this church: if you've got everything figured out, but you don't have love, you've gained nothing. You are nothing. And you're going to annoy the people around you. So the next time you hear this read at a wedding, just remember the original context of these verses. is Paul's writing to a group of Christians to rebuke them for their lack of love, telling them you might think you're very impressive, but you're just kind of annoying. How romantic. Um, Now, if it ended there, no one would ever read this at their wedding, uh, but it doesn't end there. Some of you are like, my goodness. What Paul is saying, he's not shaming them by saying you sound annoying. What he's saying is you've got to see reality so you can deal with reality. Once you see reality, what he's going to do in this chapter is he's saying, look, there is a more excellent way to live. And I want you to experience this more excellent way. I don't want you to sound like that. Man, I want you to experience the fullness of what God has for you. I want you to experience this more excellent way. And I've got to tell you, I think the hippie movement nailed this aspect of 1 Corinthians 13. um, Where the whole thing was built around this idea, right? Of the things we think matter, man. They don't really matter. Right? Right? Did I just offend anyone that was at Summer of Love? I don't mean to offend, I mean to really say, I think the hippie movement got this one. To say, man, the things that we think matter don't really matter, and we need to tune in to what really does matter. That's 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3 in (laughs) bell-bottoms. Timothy Leary got that aspect of it right, and I think that's why his invitation resonated so deeply. And I would say the only reason I think the hippie movement didn't last, um, or maybe not the only reason, but maybe the primary reason that there are no flower children around today is because the whole movement understood the importance of love, but it was built on a thin understanding of love that was a caricature of the real thing. And so I, I, I want to move from talking about problem in corinth so let's look at the radical description of love in this chapter because you know um man it's it's not just a hippie problem i think it's a human problem where we tend to have a very thin or small vision of love Um, a lot has been made about how the apostle paul uses a very rare greek word for love in this chapter um, and so the idea is he's saying, even with his language choice, that he's talking about a love that exceeds your imagination, that's far beyond what you tend to think, that we tend to think far too small when it comes to love. And, and that sounds very impressive, and I think there's some truth in that. I would just say you don't need to know Greek to see that. Let me just read for you verses four to seven, because I think you'll see in plain English the Bible's vision of love, the description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Is a radical description of love, far beyond what we as humans tend to think when we think of love. Uh, I'm going to read these verses from the New International Version because I think it it does a helpful job of uh, maybe articulating this in language that we use more commonly today. This is 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7. Listen to how Paul describes love, this thing that matters most. Love's patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. That right there is God's vision of love. And it's radical, right? I mean, I know some people who are protective, and I know other people who are kind. But real talk, those are not often the same people. Um, I know a lot of people who have hope for the future. I know plenty of people with patience. But again, those tend to not be the same people. Are you with me? This is a robust, a big, a radical vision of love. And I think what happened with the hippie movement is the same thing that happens with us today, is we don't think this big when it comes to love. We, we grab onto one aspect of this list, or maybe a couple that resonate with us, and we treat it like that's the whole thing. And so we have a very thin vision of love that's a caricature of the real thing. And it's why, even if we get the importance of love, if we don't get what love is right, we're still going to end up like that. I can do it with my hand too. Um, t- take our, I had a whole section in this. I'm like, let's dissect hippie love. Uh, as fun as that would be, do it offline. Let's talk about our culture today. Let's talk about us. Um, I think in our culture today, we really resonate with the idea about love being kind. And so we say kindness, acceptance, openness that's love. And anything that's not kind is not love. Because we've excluded the entire list and zoomed in on one part of it. And and let me just ask you, how's that working out for us? Like, I, I, I would argue that it's our thin vision of love. It's not that we don't talk about love in our culture that's the problem. It's our thin vision of love that I think is actually hurting people that we're trying to help it's it leads us to even when we get verses one to three right walk around applauding things that are destroying people and it ain't love as god would describe it and because of that some people could see that and because of that they're already swinging to the opposite extreme And they're saying, see that snowflake? Stop that fluffy love. Which is just the other extreme and another caricature, which I imagine is probably where we were at before us millennials came along and had all of our hurt feelings and everything. And then you swing back to the other extreme where all love is is telling the truth and putting you in your place. And we humans, we are so prone to thin visions of love that have one aspect but not the whole of the real thing. And it's why for all of our talk about love and how all you need is love, I think all you need is love is true if your understanding of love is 1 Corinthians 13. If your vision of love is a caricature, then there's plenty of things. I was thinking about this week, there are plenty of things my kids need from me in addition to kindness. Now, they certainly do need kindness. But if that's all there is, they're going to eat sugar all day, every day until they drop and have a heart attack because no one guided them into what would actually lead to their flourishing. And the same is true for you and for me. We as humans, we tend to go from, and, and that's just one example. That's our culture today. In 10 years, the sermon's going to be totally irrelevant. You're going to need to put a new example there. But we as humans, I could tell you stretch as far back as time, all the way back to the church in Corinth, have this thin vision of love Where we grab onto one aspect, but not the whole. And maybe we go from one extreme to the other, but it's not really what I would call progress. This is why Paul gives a radical and a robust description of love in this chapter. He says, Love, it's bigger than you imagine. It's strong enough to protect you when you need to be protected and it's tender enough to be kind and trusting and let you out when you need wings to grow. Love is this robust thing that's not any one thing. It is full, it is a big, it is a huge concept. And I think one of the reasons this chapter is so famous is because it's like a glimpse into another world. Like, verses 4 to 7 describe everything that you and I need in life. I've never met someone that looked at verses 4 to 7 and said, yeah, I've got plenty of that in my life. Would you just stop being so patient with me? I've got enough kindness in my life. Would you just knock it off? Like, and, and maybe I've met some people that don't want to be protected, but then you talk to them on the other end of things, and am like, man, I wish I had someone around in my life to warn me about some things, to put their arm around me, to hold me back, to help me. See, the picture of love we see in this chapter, it's everything we need. And, and I, I think that's why this chapter is so famous, because it's like a vision into another world. Like, what if there were a place where there was this force called love that could give you everything you need that was big enough and wide enough and strong enough and tender enough to provide just what the occasion needed for your good and your flourishing. That's why I think this chapter is so famous because I think in our hearts, we know we're made for this. We long for someone to treat us this way, but we don't see it in our world. And so I think that's why this chapter is so famous. I would also say though, I think that's also why this chapter tends to end up on coffee mugs and on pieces of art. And in large part, we tend to punt on actually trying to work it out in our lives. Because I don't know about you, but I was preparing for the series. I was reading verses 4 to 7. I'm like, who lives that way, man? Like, who actually does all of this? Someone knows where I'm going with this sermon. Um, And and before I relieve that tension for you, here's here's what I want you to hear. Um, Paul didn't write this chapter to be some lofty ideal you would hear on your wedding day or in some sermon and go, oh, isn't that nice? And then do absolutely nothing with it. Paul wrote this chapter to this impressive but frankly kind of annoying church to say, look, there is a more excellent way to live. And I'm going to describe it for you. I'm going to make you long for it, thirst for it, go, man, that's how I want to live. I'm going to tell you that you can become someone who is growing in patience and kindness. You can become the kind of person that finds yourself less focused on yourself and more bent out towards others. You can grow in this kind of love. This is where he's going in this chapter. He wants to invite them into this more excellent way. He's not saying, here it is and you'll never experience it. He says, this is the more excellent way and you can grow in this if you know the one that Paul calls the perfect in verse 9. See, see, what he says to end of the chapter is he says, hey, look, we're, we're all works in progress when it comes to love. And by the way, if you think you're not, by the way, when I said earlier who lives like this, and you're like, I do, go ahead this week and take verses 4 to 7 and replace the word love and it with your name. Pastor buddy of mine did this, and I'm, I will never forget it. Just go ahead and read that. Chad is patient, Chad is kind, and now I've just lied to the whole church. Um, See how your life lines up. I'll give you a hint. It's not going to line up. We're all works in progress when it comes to this love stuff. But what Paul says is there's one who has perfectly lived this out. See, what he says is when the perfect comes, the perfect, there's one who will perfectly live this out. And someone said in the front row, it's Jesus. Um, Try this one out with me. Jesus is, is Jesus patient? Yeah, I mean, ask Peter or any of the disciples who are constantly um, forgetting what Jesus said, failing to do what he told them to do. Yeah, Jesus is very patient. I don't know how he didn't give up on those 12 and start over new. Um, Is Jesus kind? Yeah, ask the woman who was caught in adultery and thrown naked at his feet by a bunch of religious proud men if Jesus is kind. Does Jesus envy Does he desire things that aren't his? No. Does Jesus boast? Is he proud? Well, I guess he claimed to be God, which would be boasting for you and me, but that one actually checks out for him. So that's not an inflated view of self. That's actually, for Jesus, a realistic view of self. Um, Is Jesus rude to others? Is he self-seeking? Man, if you look at the prayer life of Jesus, he's seeking the Father's will. Let not my will, but your will be done, Father. I do this to glorify your name. Is Jesus easily angered? Now, that's a risk for me to ask that, because some of you think it is. And what you need to hear this morning is Jesus isn't easily angered. This is one of the most common ways that God has described in the Old Testament, that he is slow to anger. That he doesn't see you fail and just like pick up the lightning and, bolt and go, I can't believe you might do that with you. That's not Jesus' heart towards you. Does he keep a record of wrongs? And some of you are like, well, there's a book in heaven I've heard that has a list of everything I've ever done. It's because the next thing, Jesus does not delight in evil. He doesn't tolerate injustice, but the beauty of the gospel is that God loves us so much that he sent his only son to die in our place for everything written in that book that we've done wrong in the past, everything that we're struggling with, everything in our future, to die in our place for that sin. So he can say that has been paid for, that has been dealt with. I now remove that as far as the east is from the west for you. I choose to remember that no more because it's been dealt with. So if you're in Christ, no, he keeps no record of wrongs. And if you're like, well, I'd like to get in on that, this can be the morning that you say, Jesus, I would like you to have no records of wrongs, because I just realized if you're keeping track, I'm in trouble. His invitation this morning is come. Come receive mercy and grace. He doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Does he rejoice in the truth? He is the truth. He delights in the Holy Spirit. Does Jesus protect us? And what is a stronger, more capable protection than dying on the cross, not just to save us from other humans, but from Satan's sin and death to say, just as we sang earlier, there's nothing in all of creation that can separate you from my love anymore. I have done everything necessary to protect you from every foe you will ever have. We are ultimately protected in Jesus. Does Jesus trust us? Again, that's a risky one to ask in church. Let's just be straight is Jesus in heaven right now or is he on earth accomplishing his mission because he doesn't trust us to carry out the mission he gave us? Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, for anyone that was wondering. And he has entrusted us with his mission to take the good news to the ends of the earth. I love you guys. I wouldn't entrust you with my life's mission. But Jesus does. He trusts us to tell the world of his great love. Does Jesus hope? And you should hear what he says about the rooms he's preparing for us and the glories that awaits us. Jesus is more optimistic than the youngest, most optimistic thinkers among us, myself included. And does Jesus persevere? I don't know if you guys are getting sick of the call and response thing here, or if I need to keep preaching the gospel, but let me just tell you this Jesus will never give up on you. There is never gonna come a day where He's like, okay, I've forgiven you 999,000 times, that one crossed the line. I'm done, I'm out. Humans will do that to you. You will do that to yourself. Jesus will never give up on you. His love is not so weak. His love is not so thin that he gets 90% of the list, and he's like, perseverance, maybe for Karen, not for Chad. He's a little much. He always perseveres. See, the the point I'm trying to make here is this kind of love feels otherworldly because it is. The love described in 1 Corinthians flows from God himself. Paul is saying by way of description what John says explicitly in 1 John 4, 8. That God is love. Not that God is loving. As if love is something outside of God that he lives up to those standards. What the scriptures tell us is that God is the source of love. That this most excellent way of living, it flows from him. That the way the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always in eternity related to one another, that is the thing that we call love. That is the thing that you long for. And that is the thing that Paul is just straining with human words to try to describe in verses 4 to 7. Love is not a thing that God lives up to. It is a part of his essence that flows from him. That's why this feels so otherworldly, it is. And that's not meant to um, paralyze you, go and see, I know I couldn't do this. And let's not even say that if you don't know God, you can't love, because we're all made in God's image, and we retain enough of His image in us and God's common grace. That even the pagan farthest from Jesus can have some echoes of this love that we were made for. So I'm not saying that you can't love if you don't know Jesus. What I'm saying is God is love. And the closer you get to him, the fuller your love will become. And we will never be able to walk in a thick, full vision of love. I can say this pretty confidently. You will never be able to walk in a thick, full, robust vision of love without the God who is love. You might get blips and glimpses of it here and there, but what Paul's doing in this chapter, he's not trying to paralyze us. He's trying to inspire us to draw near to the God who is love. Listen to how he ends the chapter. I'll I'll pick it up in verse 9. He says, for we know in part, and we prophesy in He's kind of riffing on some of the spiritual gifts they really like in that church. Because remember, this whole thing comes in a discussion of spiritual gifts. So he's saying, hey, your knowledge, it's really impressive. It's only in part. Your prophecy that's really impressive, it's just in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly that sounds so weird like was the light not on in the room mirrors in the first century they didn't have our technology you would not get a clean image coming back on your mirror um, think like a fun house it'd be kind of distorted and twisted and like a vague picture that's what he means he's like we can kind of barely make out I think is that what I look oh my goodness is that what I look like you don't have a clear picture think like a fun house here okay Some of you are like, that's not very fun. I know, I don't know why they call those fun houses. But he says, see, we see in a mirror dimly, but then one day we're going to see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What Paul is saying to these Christians in Corinth is God's love is so powerful that it will transform you. So so don't you dare say, um, as I've said, as I've been soaking in this chapter, nah, I I can never do this. Don't don't you dare say that. Because what Paul says is if you belong to Jesus, the God who is love, then you belong to love. And if you belong to him, there is coming a day where you're going to see him face to face. And on that day when you see him completely as he is, not through the fun mirror, but completely with no barriers between you, The day you see love expressed in the face of Jesus, you will love perfectly. You will become like Him because when you see Him fully as He is, His love will so transform you and give you a new nature. That's the gospel, not that we're going to figure this love thing out and show the hippies how much better than them we are. The gospel is that we're all hippies. We're all taking a thin view of love, whether it's this aspect or that aspect. And God loves us so much, he sent his son into the world for flawed humans like us, who maybe try our best, but are causing great damage in this world. And he says, all of your evil all of your failures, all of your falling short, I'm going to take that upon myself and I'm going to take that to the grave. I'm going to leave it there and I'm going to give you a new life and a new identity. It's my son or daughter, and if that's your identity, then you belong to love and I will bring you safely home to glory where you will love like 1 Corinthians 13 perfectly and completely forever. That's the gospel. Not that we're going to figure it out, but that God has this figured out. And that he is strong enough to transform weak, flawed creatures like you and me. And if that's the case, if seeing Jesus face-to-face transforms us to love in a new way, and that's the day that we have coming and our future is secure, well, then that means the more you see him here and now, the more you will, um, the more you taste and see of God's love for you in the gospel, which is what we try to do every week here, and hopefully it's what you're doing every day in the week, the more you see of Christ here and now, the more you see of God's love for you, you will begin to find a sprout, a little leaf of patience, kindness, goodness, protection, lacking rudeness, you will begin to find these things popping out of you. Because when we behold the love of God, it transforms us. And and sure, in this life, it's going to be imperfect. We are going to be like little funhouse mirrors of love. We're not going to do this perfect. We're all works in progress. But what Paul is saying is, as you behold the God who is love... It has the power to transform you into a person who loves. And slowly but surely, as you get your eyes up, as you get tired of this and get your eyes up onto the God who is love, slowly but surely, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will begin to live a more excellent way. That's why Paul wrote this chapter. So maybe we should say it at our weddings. Like, you can do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you keep your eyes on Jesus, this marriage can be like a funhouse mirror to the world of God's love. But I would just say it shouldn't just be to our marriages. It should be to our friendships. It should be to our church community. It should even be in how we relate to our enemies. Our enemies should be like, Bob, what's that that love that's coming kind of funky through that funhouse mirror there? What are you doing to me there? That's why Paul wrote this chapter, so that we could live a more excellent way and shine that light in this world. And so all of that said, here is the invitation of this chapter. Give yourself to love. Give yourself to love. If you're a Christian, you already belong to the God who is love. You're going to love like this someday. You might as well start now, right? And I know we talk about love in church a lot. This is the biggest challenge with this sermon. I know we talk about. I don't think I've said anything new to you today. I know we talk about love in church a lot. But what if we said enough is enough? What if we said I'm sick of this? What if we drew a line in the sand and said? Enough is enough. I'm sick of living like love is some optional virtue that I'll put on when it's convenient. What if we took this summer, the, the next three months, and had our own summer of love here, where we said, I'm going to drop out of everything. I think the hippies got that right. We need to say enough is enough. What if we dropped out of everything for the summer and said my sole priority this summer is to grow in love? I want to give myself to knowing the God who is loved better. I want to know more of his love, and I want him to press that love into me. I want to live a more excellent way. What if you said to God, God, I'll give you the next three months of my life. And I want to grow in love. I want to know your love. I'll do anything. I'll rearrange my life. Will you lead me deeper into this more excellent way? think you'd be surprised how he would answer that prayer if you would pray that honestly this morning. And so that's the invitation. Grow, give yourself to love. Stop putting it off and letting it be an optional thing because you might crush it at work. You might have a great vacation. This church might grow to where we fill the sanctuary again. But if we don't do it in love, this is what it will be like. What if we said enough is enough? What if we said, I'm going to give myself to love this summer and see what God's going to do? If you want to do that with me, here's two things, three things I would ask of you. Timothy Leary had three parts. I'm going to take three as well. It's also just a preacher's secret, so three things. Um, Number one, I would encourage you, if you're like, I want to give myself to love this summer. Enough is enough, and I want to see what God can really do. Can his love really transform someone like me? Three things you can do. Number one, take verses 4 to 7 and post it somewhere. You're going to see it often and read it often. Um, What what this will do is as you begin to memorize Scripture and meditate on Scripture, is it gives the Holy Spirit room to begin speaking into your life. This is something that the Psalms commit to us, that happy is the person who meditates on the Word of God. I, I think a simple way you can give yourself to love this summer is meditating on God's description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. So put it somewhere you're going to see it often. Think on it often. Memorize it this summer. Um, Meditate on it. Think on it often. Give the Holy Spirit room to begin um, speaking in your life to say, hey, here's an opportunity for patience. Here's an opportunity for kindness. Number two, um, I would say um, pray often and ask God, would you lead me into love? tune me if 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 you're if you were at the summer of love in 1967 use the language tune me into love god um i don't think you necessarily need drugs to do this uh though if you want to know what we think about drugs see last week's sermon Uh, but seriously pray and ask us you're meditating on the word number two you're praying and saying god would you lead me into love just wake up every morning with that as your prayer say god help me see the opportunities for it today again I, i think we underestimate the power of saying God, I give you permission to move in my life. You don't need my permission. I'm a tiny little human, but there's something relational about saying, God, I invite you into my life. Would you lead me into opportunities to love? And then number three, would you talk to someone about this? Um, you cannot grow in love in isolation because love is by nature something that is relational. And so I would say, uh, man, this is the worst time in the world for our gospel communities to be on pause, but it is summer. The rhythms have changed. That's why we're doing the summer of love thing. But I would say you've got to find someone in your life that you could say, hey, could we grow in this together? Could we be talking about this together? Can we practice this together? Because love isn't something that happens in isolation. It's something that happens in relationship. And so find your partner. Um, We're going to keep doing discussion guides for these messages every week so that you can discuss these sermons and use that as a launching off point. But that's our plans for the summer. We are going to have ourselves a summer of love here at Fair Oaks. Yes, some of you are excited. Man, I'm glad someone's with me. Okay, we're going to do this together. We're going to have a summer of love. And hey, whether or not you're doing it, here's what we're doing for the sermon series this summer. We're going to slow down on verses 4 to 7 and just take a week to unpack each, each description of love. And we're going to look at what does it actually mean to rejoice in the truth. And we're going to look at how Jesus has ultimately done this towards us. And I think that as we just soak in this description of love throughout the week and on Sundays, I'm going to bring in some great preachers in this series too that we'll get to hear from. Um, I believe as we slow down and soak in this this chap this summer, and ask God, would you grow us in love? I think God's going to meet us in a profound way, and I truly believe that we live in a day that's just as angsty as 1967. Can you imagine if in this valley our friends and our neighbors began to see a funhouse mirror that was projecting something otherworldly? Like in our day of frustration and angst, Like I'm living through today, I can tell you all the reasons that we're frustrated, we're angsty. Can you imagine in our day of screaming at each other, of doing this, this, this? What if our valley saw another way piercing through all of that chaos? What if our valley began to see a community that was living another way, a better way, a heavenly way? And it was imperfect, and and there was a lot of humility around that. But what if we could maybe radiate this? What might that do to this valley? What might that do to our world? See, if this can happen across the bay with the thin vision of love, I truly believe this. If we give ourselves to love, the sky's the limit for what God can do here. Because this little church in Corinth gave themselves to love and they got another letter of the Bible written to them and they saw some great things happen in their day that goes far beyond what we saw across the bay. The question is, what are we going to see in our day? Come ask me in September, I'll tell you. It's going to be a great summer. Amen? All right, let me pray for us. God, we worship you for being beyond us. Thank you for being everything we want and we need. Um, God, I ask that you would do a miracle. I know that as I've thought about these verses for myself, I go, what a lofty vision to say we could have our own summer of love that reshapes the story of California, just like they did across the bay. But I believe in my heart of hearts, you can actually do that. And so I ask that you would do a miracle. Would you make us such a loving church that people would stop having the excuse of the lack of love in Christians for not believing in you, that we could go from being... um, neutral or a barrier to people's faith, could we maybe become a powerful light that is reflecting your love in this world? Would you work a miracle in us that would make us a more loving people that would scream to the world around us of the love that they long for is actually real. God, my words are getting too long right now. I'm just asking, would you do a miracle among us? Would you make this the kind of summer of love that we do sermon intros about 50 years from now because of what we see you do among us? My words can't do it, our services can't do it, but you can do it because you are love, you are alive, and you are real. And so we invite you into this place and ask, would you help us do these things? We give ourselves to you. We love you. In the beautiful name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.